Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Kevin Hogan. Let's take a look at our top stories. President Biden meeting with leaders of Southeast Asian countries. Washington upping its game to show it's focused on the Indo-Pacific and countering China. The House January 6th committee has subpoenaed Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy. We bring you reactions from both sides of the aisle. The Pennsylvania primary is next Tuesday, May 17th. Three Senate candidates on the Republican side will have to battle it out in a competitive race. A parade is marching through the streets of New York City today to celebrate World Fallen Daffa Day. The event marks the 30th year of this spiritual practice and raises awareness of decades of persecution under the Chinese Communist regime. President Biden is hosting leaders from Southeast Asia today in Washington, D.C. The administration promised to spend millions on efforts aimed at countering China's influence in the region. And today's Jessica Beatty has more. President Biden's meeting with leaders of the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, or ASEAN, Friday for talks at the State Department. Biden welcomed the leaders Thursday with a dinner at the White House to kick off the two-day summit. It's the first time the groups ever met in Washington, D.C. The White House said the U.S. is investing more than $150 million for new projects in Southeast Asia to boost the region's energy, maritime and public health infrastructure. The U.S. is also launching a leadership development program called the U.S. ASEAN Institute for Rising Leaders. Through private funding, the program will sponsor up to 30 public service professionals from ASEAN countries each year. A number of Biden officials also met with ASEAN leaders Thursday. Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo says another focus is improving supply chain resilience. We are looking to work with you and your companies uh, to build a resilient, greater resilience and security in our supply chains. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin welcomed his Thai counterpart to the Pentagon. He said Thailand is the United States' oldest friend and ally in the Indo-Pacific. For decades, our alliance has bolstered security in this critical region. So I'm delighted to announce today that I'll be making my first visit to Thailand as Secretary of Defense next month. Secretary of State Antony Blinken welcomed Thailand's Deputy Prime Minister, who's also Thailand's top diplomat. A very strong shared uh, agenda uh, for um, a stable, peaceful uh, Indo-Pacific that we'll be working on. The Biden administration hopes the summit shows that Washington remains focused on the Indo-Pacific and the long-term challenge of China, which the U.S. views as its main competitor. In November alone, China pledged $1.5 billion to help ASEAN countries. The special summit in Washington comes before Biden's trip next week to South Korea and Japan. Jessica Beatty, NTD News. The January 6th panel has issued subpoenas to House GOP leader Kevin McCarthy and four other Republican lawmakers. It's part of their probe into the January 6th Capitol breach. Here's McCarthy's reaction to the news. I have not seen a subpoena. I guess they sent it to you guys before they sent it to me. Um, Look, my view on the committee has not changed. They're not conducting a legitimate investigation. It seems as though they just want to go after their political opponents. But the one thing that has changed in America Higher inflation that we haven't seen since the 70s, unsecured border, gas prices, and now we don't have baby formula. Reporters asked McCarthy what this means for the future of the House and if he will comply with the subpoena. He didn't reply. 
Democrat Jamie Raskin of Maryland is on the committee. He says the GOP members should comply. And in cases where people don't want to uh, participate voluntarily, then you know, we have the option of sending them a subpoena to ask them to come in. And I have every reason to believe that people receiving subpoenas today will comply with their legal duty and I would say moral duty to cooperate with an investigation into an attack on Congress and on the political institutions of the country. The move is nearly unprecedented because it is rare for Congress to subpoena sitting members. The decision is sure to cause further tension between the two parties. The other Republican congressmen who are subpoenaed are Jim Jordan of Ohio, Scott Perry of Pennsylvania, Andy Biggs of Arizona, and Mo Brooks of Alabama. The J6 committee includes six Democrats and two Republicans. The two Republican representatives, Adam Kinzinger and Liz Cheney, have been outspoken critics of former President Trump. And last July, McCarthy pulled all Republicans from the committee after House Speaker Nancy Pelosi rejected two of his picks. Those were Congressman Jim Jordan and Jim Banks. At the time, Pelosi didn't elaborate and just cited concerns about their actions. McCarthy called it an egregious abuse of power that would damage the institution. The subpoenas come as the panel's investigation finishes up and its members prepare for hearings this summer. It's a tight race for the Republican Senate primary in Pennsylvania. A Fox News poll released Monday shows three candidates almost back-to-back. Here are the details. The Fox News poll shows celebrity heart surgeon Dr. Mehmet Oz leading at 22%, followed by former hedge fund CEO David McCormick at 20%, and military veteran Kathy Barnett at 19%. During a forum for candidates on Wednesday, Oz and Barnett spoke to voters about why they are running and what their priorities are. My children have no idea what it feels like to stand in front of an empty refrigerator door wondering where their next meal is going to come from, and it is because of this country that allowed me to be able to to create a different story for myself. But that country is about to come to a close. So we need good people now to stand up and begin to fight for the greatest nation that has ever existed. Several conservative groups recently threw their support behind Barnett. They include the Club for Growth, which advocates for tax cuts, and the Susan B. Anthony list, which is pro-life. Meanwhile, Mehmet Oz has the endorsement of former President Trump. Oz spoke of Trump's endorsement at the forum. He did it for two reasons. He said, first, you're the guy who can win in November. He did all the calculus, looked at the tea leaves, and I still believe that is the main reason I was endorsed. I was the most likely person to beat the Democrats. The second reason is he knows I'm America first. The Ukraine is not our war. We're not sending our boys over there or women over there. What we will do, though, is arm them to the teeth. But the Ukraine is really a test. It's a test about Taiwan. That's the big issue. David McCormick toured the Lackawanna College of Petroleum and Natural Gas on Tuesday and spoke about the importance of natural gas drilling to Pennsylvania's economy. I'm running because I'm, I'm really worried that the country and Pennsylvania is going in the wrong direction. And uh, the policies we have in place, I think, are killing our economy and, um, and really hurting our institutions. And in particular, the energy industry, as you guys know, is really critical to uh, Pennsylvania's future. Uh, I like to say it's the long pole in the tent in terms of, uh, of Pennsylvania's, Pennsylvania's future. On the Democratic side, Pennsylvania's Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman is currently leading in the polls and fundraising. The primary election is Tuesday, May 17th. Elon Musk says his deal to buy Twitter is temporarily on hold. That's until he gets verification on Twitter's claim that bots or fake accounts make up fewer than 5% of users. 
In a May 13th Twitter post, Musk referenced a Reuters report. According to the report, Twitter estimates that spam accounts represented fewer than 5% of its daily active users during the first quarter. Twitter's disclosure comes days after Musk said one of his priorities would be to remove spam bots from the platform. He's offered to buy Twitter for around $44 billion. Musk said if his bid to buy Twitter is successful, he intends to authenticate all real humans on the platform. Spam bots on Twitter are automated accounts that can take action like real humans, such as sending out tweets and following other users. These accounts can be programmed to drive traffic for commercial reasons or spread content as a part of social or political influence operation. Wildfires are moving through Southern California, leading to mandatory evacuations in the Los Angeles area. Here's more. Hundreds have been forced to evacuate from their homes in California due to rapid-moving wildfires that have engulfed an enclave of multi-million dollar mansions in southern Los Angeles. Residents of around 900 houses were under evacuation on the state's coast on Wednesday when the fires swept through. Orange County officials have said one firefighter was injured when flames torched around 200 acres in Laguna Niguel on Wednesday. On Thursday, resident Sassandarian described a fast and devastating fire. The heat started getting on us and it was really, the wind got worse and the fire sparks started jumping and you can see it got really, really close really, really quick. And when we got out here, the fire trucks were already here and everything and they had already called evacuation order from the helicopter. Fire Captain Joseph Amador's teams says it was an overnight struggle to contain the blaze. We arrived this morning to relieve a very tired crew's Um, They were battling all these structures here behind me that were heavily damaged. We're here today to protect the ones that are are still standing and also to put out the remaining fires of the ones that are still either salvageable or to make sure that they're no longer a threat. So we have a heavy, uh, busy day in front of us also, but we're going to do our very best to protect the rest of the community. Another resident of Laguna Niguel, Darlene Diesbrucker, was forced to evacuate her home and spend the night in a shelter. So this is devastating to people who do live here, shocked that it's a more affluent neighborhood, but people have lost their homes. It doesn't matter where you live then, it's your home. And um, the thought of losing your home is is a, a very scary thing. Officials have said California is enduring an historic drought. Experts also say a lack of winter moisture combined with warmer temperatures is causing vegetation to dry out earlier each spring, making it more susceptible to fire. President Joe Biden has ordered federal aid for fire recovery efforts. In New Mexico, the largest blaze burning in the United States has now consumed more than 400 square miles, an area bigger than the city of Dallas, Texas. The fire east of Santa Fe has burned through mountainous forests for more than a month. Fire officials said there was not much they could do in recent days. The fast-moving flames burned up tender dry forests in the Sangre de Cristo range in northern New Mexico. Ponderosa pines and other trees sucked dry of moisture fueled the fires. Crews fighting flames along the mountain fronts between Santa Fe and Taos mostly held their own on Thursday thanks to help from aerial attacks. But Fire Operations Chief Todd Abel said that in some places where winds were gusting over ridgetops, it was almost like putting a hairdryer on it. California regulators deny approval for a $1.4 billion plant to remove salt from seawater. It's a project criticized on environmental grounds, but backed by the California governor. 
The governor sees it as a necessary tool to counter sustained drought. However, the California Coastal Commission says it uses a process that would harm marine life and the nearby bird habitat. The commission also says the plant would be vulnerable to flooding from rising sea levels. The plant would have produced 50 million gallons of drinking water per day. That's enough for 16% of the homes in the Orange County Water District, where 2.5 million people live. Poseidon Water Company has been trying to get the project built in Huntington Beach for more than 20 years. The company has operated a similar plant down the coast in Carlsbad since 2015. It's the largest plant of its kind in the United States. Minimum wage in California is expected to go up to $15.50 per hour next January. Governor Gavin Newsom's office made the announcement Thursday. The rate is increasing because a state provision about inflation was triggered. Newsom's office indicated the state's minimum wage law requires an accelerated increase when inflation goes over 7%. The Bureau of Labor Statistics said Wednesday the consumer price index was up 8.3% year-over-year in April. Current minimum wage in California is $14 an hour for employers with 25 employees or fewer and $15 an hour for employers with 26 or more employees. Companies with fewer than 26 employees were originally going to have to raise the minimum wage to just $15 an hour in January. Under the newly triggered provision, the governor's office said the $15.50 minimum wage will now be required for all workers. Water levels in Lake Mead are now at an all-time low. The lake supplies water for Nevada, California, Arizona, and Mexico. Those responsible for water management in nearby Las Vegas are ticketing residents who willingly waste the precious resource. Las Vegas has long been a hub for cops and robbers, but now there's a different sort of sheriff on the prowl. Meet Cameron Donnarumma, water waste investigator. I mainly drive around the city of Las Vegas and I just uh, look for any kind of water waste violations that are occurring. Um, so that can include anything such as uh, water excess runoff, water running off of the property, anything that's malfunctioning, uh, anything broken, so like a broken sprinkler, broken drip emitter, irrigation system leak, anything like that. In drought-stricken Nevada, authorities have declared a war on water waste. Alarms are flashing because Lake Mead, a reservoir which supplies Nevada, California, Arizona, and Mexico, is now at an all-time low, and the rain is just not falling fast enough to help. That's why Las Vegas is cracking down on leaks, drips, and runoff. So what I'm doing right now is I'm just filling out a, like a water waste flag. Donna Ruma gives warnings or tickets to homeowners who willingly waste the precious resource when watering their grass. As of right now, we're in summer watering, so um, it's actually against the rules to water between 11 a.m. and 7 p.m. It's too hot, so the water is just going to evaporate anyway, so that's why that's, in, that's enforced. Bronson Mack, spokesperson for Las Vegas Valley Water District, said there have been over 5,000 water waste investigations in 2022, and some have resulted in fines. Fines start at $80, and then for every subsequent violation that occurs, that fine doubles. So from $80 to $160 to $320, all the way up to $1,200. Um, so it is a significant penalty to wastewater, and it's actually intended to be that way. The Las Vegas Valley Water District is also offering financial incentives for homes to tear up their grass and replace it with artificial turf or cacti and rocks. Measures in response to the driest Vegas has been since Prohibition. A dump truck struck an Ohio Department of Transportation vehicle while a highway technician was working alongside an interstate. 
The impact caused an explosion. A traffic camera caught the accident on video. It shows the vehicle being struck while it was parked on the shoulder of Interstate 77 in Green, Ohio. The Ohio DOT says the technician was picking up trash alongside the highway. Both drivers were transported to a local hospital and are being treated for serious injuries. Remember the guys who tried to switch planes mid-flight and stunt for Red Bull? They've both been grounded by the Federal Aviation Administration. Stuntman Luke Aikens and Andy Farrington flew two planes above the Arizona desert last month, then pointed the planes at the ground. Their plan was to skydive from one plane to another, leaving each plane momentarily pilotless. The whole thing was streamed live on Hulu, including the part where one of the planes spun out of control and crashed. Both men are okay, but they didn't get the FAA's approval to do the stunt, which is why the FAA is cracking down. They've had to surrender their pilot certificates, and there could be a fine as well. Still to come, top diplomats from the G7 are meeting at a castle in Germany to discuss the war in Ukraine, and Ukraine holds its first war crimes case against a Russian soldier. And the Kremlin makes changes to their intelligence gathering. We tell you why and give you some analysis on the war from a national security expert after this short break. G7 foreign ministers are in Germany discussing support for Ukraine. The two-day meeting is being held at a German castle on the Baltic Sea coast. NTD reporter Jeremy Sandberg has more. Foreign ministers from the United States, Canada, Germany, France, Italy, Japan, Britain, and the European Union met at a 400-year-old castle estate in the Baltic Sea resort of Eisenhaus. They were joined by foreign ministers from Moldova and Ukraine who were invited in a show of support. Opening comments were made before the meeting officially started. British Foreign Secretary Liz Truss called the unity of the G7 vital. It's very important at this time that we keep up the pressure on Vladimir Putin by supplying more weapons to Ukraine, by increasing the sanctions. And France's Foreign Minister Jean-Yves Le Drian says the G7 will support Ukraine until victory against Russia. EU Foreign Policy Chief Joseph Borrell says the EU will provide another 500 million euros in military aid to Ukraine. That's about 520 million U.S. dollars. The recipe is clear. More of the same. I mean more support to Ukraine, including military support. Borrell says he is confident an agreement will be reached on a Russian oil embargo. This following promises by G7 leaders on Sunday to ban or phase out buying Russian oil. Germany called the G7 meeting a powerful sign of unity. Priority discussions include food supply chain security and concerns of the conflict moving into Moldova. Meanwhile, German industrial giant Siemens says it's leaving Russia after almost 170 years of operations there. The company's CEO condemned the war in Ukraine and says the company wants to ensure the safety of its 3,000 employees in Russia. And in Ukraine, the first war crimes case against the captured Russian soldier is beginning. The soldier is charged with the murder of a 62-year-old civilian. Kyiv has accused Russia of brutality and atrocities against civilians and says it's identified more than 10,000 possible war crimes since the invasion started. Russia denies targeting civilians in war crimes and is accusing Kyiv of staging them to smear its forces. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. 
The Kremlin has put Russia's spy masters on the bench in favor of military intelligence chiefs. The Federal Security Service, which is Russia's main spy agency, has been blamed for intelligent failings in the war. We hear some analysis on Moscow's ambitions and potential operations from a national security expert in the U.S. who is from the Donbass region. Please welcome Professor Olena Lennon at the University of New Haven. Thank you for joining us, Olena. Thanks for having me. I want to start with the Director of National Intelligence, Avril Haines. She says Russia's ambitions extend beyond the Donbass region. She basically says retreating from Kyiv was just an attempt to refocus their forces. Do you think Russia has enough combat power to move westward? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, their strategic objectives remain the same. So Russia obviously um, remains keen on controlling the entire Ukraine and uh, changing its geopolitical, uh, geopolitical orientation. However, given the reality on the battlefield, uh, they simply don't have the combat power to execute any more offensives beyond uh, eastern Ukraine in the Donbass region. Even though they had to scale down their political aims, given uh, the military defeats that they had suffered in the north, uh, they continue holding some terrain in the south, and they continue uh, offensive operations in eastern Ukraine, trying to take uh, Kharkiv, uh, the second largest city in eastern Ukraine, uh, and also expanding areas of control in the Donbas. However, given the tremendous losses that they had suffered in the initial phases of war, um, it is believed that this is the last offensive operation that they can actually execute without uh, making some significant changes to uh, their manpower, whether it's a general mobilization uh, or offering conscripts more um, you know, extended uh, contract service. Um, but given the reality on, on the ground right now, Russia simply doesn't have the manpower to execute a large-scale offensive beyond the Donbass. This war has certainly taken a toll on both militaries as well as many civilians. DNI Haynes said that the Kremlin may seek to take a breakaway region in Moldova to deny Ukraine access to the Black Sea. Do you expect this? Not in the immediate future. Uh, again, um, Putin currently is trying to achieve at, at least a limited victory. Um, and, uh, you know, they're they're prosecuting this campaign a lot more cautiously than in the first couple of weeks, uh, again, given the losses they had suffered. And uh, given the momentum uh, that Ukraine has on the battlefield uh, with the help of you know, Western weapon deliveries and intelligence help as well. Um, so the Russians may have ambitions to deny Ukraine access to the Black and Azov Sea um, and to institute some sort of an economic blockade to where Ukraine could basically be unable to, uh, to trade, uh, to export its products overseas. Um, that's a possibility, and I think that would ultimately be the goal. However, um, again, I, I think that the Kremlin currently is much more cautious, um, given the resources that they have and, and given their inability to replenish any of the lost equipment uh, because of sanctions. So uh, they have to be much more realistic with how they use their manpower and resources and linking up with the forces in Transnistria um, in a separatist-controlled area of, of Moldova uh, would be uh, quite ambitious on their behalf because it would draw uh, the much-needed forces that they need in, in the Donbass right now. Professor Olena Lennon at the University of New Haven, thank you so much for your analysis. Thanks for having me. A U.S. citizen says he was held captive and beaten by Russian forces in Ukraine. He is now safe in Poland after being rescued by a private volunteer group. He describes his ordeal as an example of war crimes. Here are the details. 
Footage shared with Reuters purports to show the moment an American hostage who claims he was beaten by Russians in Ukraine reunited with his wife and mother-in-law, who transfer suitcases to another car and speed toward Poland. I was initially arrested in my home. They came in, they took me out, cuffed me, uh, you know, beat me, threw me on the ground, took me to a cell, uh, interrogated me. Um, then furthermore, beat me. Kirillo Alexandrov of Michigan said he was freed by a private group called Project Dynamo after his capture, while trying to flee the Ukrainian city of Kherson. Dynamo co-founder Brian Stern said Alexandrov was arrested on suspicion of spying for the U.S. Kirillo was charged with uh, 11, like, uh, felonies of national security. There were 11 of them all centered around spying for the U.S. government, an unregistered foreign agent, that kind of thing. So it was all espionage, spy stuff that are completely false, to be clear. Reuters was unable to independently verify Alexandrov's account of arrest or abuse. The things my family went through were nothing short of war crimes. The Russian Defense and Foreign Ministries did not respond to emailed requests for comment. Russia has previously denied targeting civilians and has rejected allegations of war crimes. Project Dynamo, established by a group of U.S. military veterans, made headlines in September 2021 when it arranged for the chartered evacuation of more than 100 Americans flown from Afghanistan to the United States via the United Arab Emirates. A Ukrainian opera student uses her talent to raise awareness about the horrors of war happening in her home country. She now lives in Wisconsin, where she holds benefit concerts and presentations. Here are the details. Anya Nakonechna has lived periodically in Ukraine, most recently as an opera student at the Lviv National Musical Academy. The 21-year-old was home in a Milwaukee suburb during winter break when the war broke out. All of our songs, all of our Ukrainian songs, I always had a connection to every single word in the poem. But right now, all, all of our ancestors' pains is just, it's, it means so much more. She still takes classes online, but spends much of her time in the community, raising awareness and educating people about Ukraine. I feel like creating beauty out of all of these horrors are very convincing to people. They, are, they bring the message out faster. So we've had a lot of benefit concerts. Her friends in Ukraine shared videos with her of their efforts to get supplies to places hardest hit by the war. Sometimes you have pa panic. Sometimes you don't, uh, most of the time, you just have to get yourself together. And we're not even there. It's called a willow, willow. Anya's grandparents, aunts and uncles, and cousins are still in Ukraine, as well as friends and professors. Just ahead, a giant Chinese-funded copper mine in the Peruvian Andes has been subject to heavy protests and clashes. Indigenous tribes claim ownership of the land and its resources, while production at the mine has come to a halt. All that and more right here on NTD News.
Chinese spy ship has been spotted off the west coast of Australia. It took an unusual route without notifying the authorities. Australia's defense minister says it was an act of aggression. Australia's Defense Department has tracked a Chinese surveillance vessel. That was when it operated near the country's northwest continental shelf. Defense Secretary Peter Dutton described the ship's move as unprecedented. I think it is uh, an aggressive act, and I think particularly because uh, it has come so far south. For it to come south of Exmouth is without precedent, and for it to hug the coastline the way in which it has uh, and heading up toward uh, the north. Now, we don't know whether it deviates uh, and goes you know, directly north, but at the moment it's heading uh, in a northeasterly direction. In a statement, the Defense Department said they identified the vessel as a Dongdiao-class auxiliary intelligence ship, dubbed Haiwang Xing. Dutton condemned it for not contacting the Australian authorities about its approach, a standard international protocol. The Chinese uh, warship uh, with an intelligence gathering capability, uh, it's obviously uh, very strange that it's come this far south and it's hugging the coastline as it goes north and its intention will be uh, to collect as much electronic intelligence as it can and that's, uh, as I say, just very unusual. In response, China's foreign ministry accused Australia of using, quote, frightening words just to cause alarm. A regime spokesman claimed he was unaware of the situation, arguing that China has always abided by international law. The spy ship emerged just days after Beijing's foreign minister, Wang Yi, announced his planned trip to the South Pacific, notably to formalize a security treaty with the Solomon Islands. Meanwhile, relations with Beijing are also dominating debates around Australia's upcoming federal election. An indigenous community in the Andean region of Peru was resettled eight years ago to make way for a Chinese-owned copper mine. Now the community wants the land back, and they are protesting. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg has the latest. In mid-April, over 100 Fuere Bamba community members stormed the Las Bombas mine and pitched tents near the huge open pit. The mine provides 2% of global copper supplies, worth $3 billion annually. The protest forced a halt in production at the site. We are still in the fight. We have sent Las Bombas Mining Company and the Minister's Council Presidency a letter. We said Las Bombas Mine cannot move one gram of copper from Las Bombas. They were joined by the nearby Juan Quiri community, which is protesting a planned expansion of the mine on their former land. The mine's Chinese owner, MMG Limited, recently tried to remove the camp. It led to clashes in which dozens of people were injured and failed to end the protest. Copper production remains suspended with no restart in sight. The Fuere Bamba members were evicted, but the Juan Quiri community remains in place. During the first days, when we were in Nueva Fuera Bamba, it was like we were incarcerated. We had an entrance and an exit door. We had no movement. How could it be possible? The whole community felt dizzy. It was like we were inside a prison. Both groups have formed an alliance to bargain with the Peruvian government and the mine. The protest is the most severe crisis Los Bombas Mine has faced since opening in 2016. Over 1,500 members of the Fuere Bamba community were relocated by Las Bombas in 2014 to a purpose-built village near the mine. It says the protests are illegal but declined requests for comment. Las Bombas is over 60% owned by MMG, the Melbourne-based unit of state-owned China Min Metals Corporation. The government gave MMG permission to expand the mine in March. Community leaders deny the protests are a shakedown. The Juan Quiri community is demanding more benefits from the underground minerals. 
Under Peruvian law, citizens don't own mineral wealth underground and the land was already formally sold. But indigenous communities have special rights because of their long ancestry in the territory. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. North Korea has reported its first COVID-19 death since the pandemic swept the globe two years ago. State-run KCNA News carried the news on Friday, also reporting that hundreds of thousands of people have shown fever symptoms. Among them, six have died, with one of those cases confirmed to have contracted the Omicron variant of the virus. It's an unprecedented admission of what KCNA called an explosive outbreak and offers hints of the potentially dire scale of the country's first confirmed outbreak. The isolated country has said the outbreak began in the capital of Pyongyang in April, but has given out few details. Experts said that given North Korea's limited testing capabilities, the numbers released so far probably represent a small fraction of the infections, which could lead to thousands of deaths in one of the only two countries in the world without a COVID-19 vaccination campaign. Coming up at the World Fallen Dafa Day Parade, practitioners tell us how they benefit from their practice and also about the ongoing persecution in China. Stay tuned for more right here on NTD News. Today, thousands of Falun Gong practitioners commemorated the 30th anniversary of the founding of the spiritual practice with a parade in Manhattan. Falun Gong is also known as Falun Dafa. It was first introduced in China on May 13, 1992. The spiritual practice involves meditative exercises and moral teachings based on the tenets of truthfulness, compassion, and forbearance. Due to its many health benefits, the practice exploded in popularity throughout word of mouth in a short period of time. By 1999, there were between 70 million and 100 million adherents in China alone, according to official estimates. NTD's Chenny Wu brings us the latest. Colorful floats and banners accompanied by yellow-suited drummers and a winding dragon cross New York City as adherents of the spiritual discipline Falun Gong mark World Falun Dafa Day. The wordings on the banners highlighted the practice's guiding principles, truthfulness, compassion, and tolerance. Two Falun Gong practitioners shared how the practice changed their lives. Sterling, you've performed with David Bowie and Duran Duran, to name a few. But how is it managing such a big group of people and preparing for such a big event? Um, well, from being in the music business so long, I've also watched how people prepared because we're also dealing with a large group when you're setting up for a tour. So I don't know, I use all the things I've learned from being in the music business on, on uh, organizing things. Um, what is your experience practicing Falun Dafa? What benefits have you gotten? A lot of uh, self-reflection, you know, really trying to do right <laughs> as opposed to wrong, which I've, in my past, I, I went down a lot of wrong paths and uh, um, it's just trying to correct me on, on the right path. And uh, also my, uh, you know, I, I dealt with a lot of addictions in the past and I was able to like overcome uh, alcohol and cigarettes and drugs. Here with me today is Olivier Chateau. He's a Falun Gong practitioner participating in this year's Falun Dafa Day Parade. So, Olivier, can you tell me what is the greatest value that practicing Falun Dafa has given you? 
Well, I think um, I, I think one one of the greatest value is really uh, some some moral values, uh, the three values: uh, authenticity, uh, compassion, and forbearance. I think these are really for me. It's like a lighthouse in my daily life because the society is, is often promoting uh, um, uh, you know instant gratification and uh, and short-term pleasure. But there's there's for me there's more to life, uh, and it gives me a very solid ground to. To, um, to reach peace of heart and mind. So what exactly prompted you to pick it up? It's not really, um, it's, it's, it's not really like a decision per se or, or prompt me to pick it up. It's more, uh, you know, sometimes in, in life you meet people that you know you, will, you have a certain connection or you, you know you, you will, you know, do a part of your journey with. Um, so Falun Dafa was really like that. It was just like f when I read the book, I felt home. I felt that what it was taught in Falun Dafa was exactly what I believed deep down inside from my childhood, but that society was not encouraging me, emboldening me to, uh, to, to promote or, or, or abide by. So I felt a, a very strong connection. So it was very natural. It was not a, uh, a logical decision. It was just knowing that this is what I was looking for. Olivier, thanks for sharing. Paranoid about the number of adherents and believing Falun Gong was a threat to its atheist ideology. In July 1999, the Chinese Communist Party, under the leadership of Jiang Zemin, launched a large-scale persecution with the aim of crushing Falun Gong. Inside China, overnight, a hundred million people became enemies of the state as tens of thousands began to be shipped off to detention centers and labor camps. Meanwhile, those people who practiced Falun Gong outside China began to devote their energy and spare time to exposing what was unfolding in China. Here with me is Simon Zhang, whose mother was taken away to the labor camps for practicing Falun Dafa. Simon, can you tell me a bit about what happened? So the first time that was uh, back in 2001, I was at home. I saw my mom taken away by local police. They ransacked the whole apartment, found out materials like Falun Gong books, uh, materials like uh, stickers that, and uh, flyers. They used that as excuse, giving no reason they took her away. What happened after she was taken away that time? She was beaten horribly in the local detention center, then sent to a labor camp, almost died there after torture there. Wait, but how old was she at that time? That was in 2001, so she was 44 years old. Oh, wow. So she was already pretty old, and yet they treated her like that. Right. Um, so can you tell me a bit about what happened later? The second occasion that was in 2008, before the Summer Olympics in Beijing, she was taken away again. For similar reason, similar happened, similar thing happened, tortured, then sent to a remote labor camp, almost died there again. How about the last time? So last time was the third time, and she did not escape death. Uh, February 1st, that was Chinese New Year, they took her, took her away. Simply a sim similar thing for believing in truthfulness, compassion, forbearance, and not giving up for distributing flyers and clarifying truth to normal people. Then she take, they took her away, tortured ser seriously. Then they, because she was uh, lost, she lost her consciousness. They sent her to hospital, and her last uh, 37 days was uh, spent in hospital, being handcuffed to bed, iron fetters on ankles, and rubber, rubber tube in nose. Then died there. I'm so sorry, Simon. Yeah, it's a, it's a really terrible memory for my entire family and me. 
Simon, thanks for sharing your story. Back to you, Kevin. Thank you, Jenny. You can watch the full coverage of today's parade at NTD.com. The New York State Senate adopted a resolution commemorating the 23rd World Fallen Daffa Day. It's an annual event that was first celebrated in 2000 in recognition of Falun Dafa's years of dedication to upholding universal values. The document was sponsored by 11 senators. It notes that the practice empowers individuals to leave behind addictions and bad habits and helps families to return to harmony. Still to come, Paris is once again busy with tourists as countries change their pandemic travel policies. Hotels in the city say they are getting close to levels before the pandemic. You may be one step closer to sharing the road with trucks that have no drivers. Self-driving trucks are already hauling goods in many states, but they still require humans behind the wheel. One reason for that is because drivers need to take over if there is an unplanned event like a tire blowout or engine failure. Autonomous truck company Kodiak Robotics has unveiled a new system it says can safely pull a truck over without the help of a human driver. It's called a fallback, and Kodiak says it's the first company to publicly show the maneuver completed by a computer. Experts say we're still probably years away from seeing trucks without human drivers. The industry hasn't proven self-driving trucks can operate reliably in dangerous weather conditions, and there are also still laws in place that require a person in the driver's seat. Is it a plane or is it a boat? Hawaiian Airlines is investing in a fully electric sea glider in an effort to reduce fuel costs. The airline is partnering with Boston-based Regent for the new aircraft. Regent has raised $27 million from investors including Teal Capital, which is owned by billionaire Peter Teal, and Shark Tank's Mark Cuban. The Sea Glider is powered by eight propellers and can reach speeds of up to 180 miles per hour. It can take off and land from harbors, making it ideal for island hopping, which amounted to 20% of Hawaiian Airlines' revenues before the pandemic. Sea gliders are also regulated by the U.S. Coast Guard, not the FAA, so pilots aren't required to complete 1,500 hours of training. Hawaiian Airlines is working with Regent on a 100-seat sea glider and plans to start service in 2028. Tourists from around the globe are back in Paris again. Many of them have had to delay their trips for years due to the pandemic. Let's take a look. These two siblings are among the many tourists enjoying a long overdue break in Paris. They originally planned the trip as a graduation gift for the sister in 2020. My sister graduated. Um, she actually graduated in 2020. And so the plan was after she graduated to take her on a trip, because we're from the UK, just pop over and see Paris, see the sites, have some good food. But obviously COVID happened, so it's been postponed two years. So the ceremony was two years late, so our trip is also two years late. But we finally made it to Paris and had a great time. Two years later, they finally made it, with the sister traveling from Britain and the brother coming all the way from Kenya. And walking around the streets, seeing people's faces without masks, yeah. going to restaurants, having like feeling the energy of people around you without the distancing, it's so refreshing. And these two sisters from Ireland also planned their trip two years ago. We were supposed to come here for her 18th birthday, so she's 20, 20 today. So <laughs> exactly two years later we're here. Mm. We originally planned to come the first year that COVID hit, so it was the summer that everything was still locked up. And this couple from Chicago came to Paris to celebrate their engagement. I think most people were probably waiting for something like this, at least Westerners. So, oh, I mean, this was a top pick for us and we couldn't be, you know, more happy to be here. 
it's beautiful and it's amazing to see everyone out here, right? So it's, it's the most back to normal that we have seen since. The Paris Tourist Office is forecasting that foreign visits will increase more than five-fold in May to July compared to the same period last year. And that's mainly thanks to tourists from Spain, Germany, Britain and Italy. First of all, because a lot of uh, um, countries have totally changed the COVID uh, travel policies, so it was really good for us. But the only part of the world that we did not see really good comeback was from Asia. So for the moment, what kind of nationality we see in our country, I mean, in the city of Paris, it's most U.S., uh, still Europe really strong, and people from South America. According to marketing consulting company MKG Consulting, hotel owners saw a sharp rise in bookings this spring. Overall activities were getting close to pre-pandemic levels in April and even topping 2019 figures over Easter. For the first time, scientists have used lunar soil collected by NASA's long-ago moonwalkers to grow plants. The results are promising. NASA and others are envisioning hothouses on the moon. The University of Florida researchers had no idea if anything would grow in moon dirt, so they planted a type of cress in lunar soil last year. They used soil that Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, and other moonwalkers had collected. All the seeds sprouted, but the plants ended up stunted. The scientists are thrilled, though. They're planning to repeat the experiment. NASA says the timing for such an experiment was finally right as the space agency looks to put astronauts back on the moon. A photo beamed back to Earth from the Curiosity Mars rover shows what looks like a Martian doorway in the side of a rock formation. The image has puzzled viewers and is sparking theories. Professor Sanjeev Gupta at Imperial College London told the Daily Telegraph that the photo is a fracture in the rock. NASA told Snopes that the doorway isn't as big as it looks and that the image is zoomed in to the extreme. The image was snapped on May 7th on what is known as Greenhue Pediment. The rover has explored the area for months. It landed on Mars in 2012. NASA has another rover on Mars. Perseverance landed in 2021. It's collecting rock samples in another area of the planet. The World Rugby Organization has chosen the USA to host two Rugby World Cups. Organizers hope to see the sport grow in the country and to tap into the huge U.S. sports market. It's confirmed Australia will host the Men's World Cup in 2027 and the Women's in 2029. England will host the 2025 Women's Tournament and the U.S. will host the Men's World Cup in 2031 and the Women's World Cup in 2033. World Rugby Council finalized the meeting in Dublin. The World Rugby chairman said the governing body had approved three exceptional World Cup host nations. He said they would help move the sport forward. The U.S. was in dialogue with World Rugby as part of a new selection model introduced last year. It aims to help the sport grow faster. These will be the first Rugby World Cup tournaments on American soil. President Biden last month backed the country's bid. He pledged to promote rugby in the country and deliver the most successful Rugby World Cups in history. Thank you so much for joining us. We're going to put our email address on screen. We'd love to hear from you. For podcasters, that's news.today at ntd.com. Until next time, Kevin Hogan, NTD News, New York City.